0: Welcome to the Science of Success, introducing your host,
2: Matt Bodnar. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss the important difference between competence and confidence, and look at the dangers of focusing too much on building up your self-esteem. We explore the gift of failure and why sometimes it's better to let children fail than to try and make them feel better. We learn why frustration is a vital and important piece of the learning process, why we must consider the inevitability of failure, and we uncover one of the most powerful teaching tools that you can use to learn, grow, and improve with our guest, Jessica Leahy. I'm gonna tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff If you haven't signed up for our email list yet, all you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage on top of tons of subscriber only content, exclusive access and live Q and A's with previous guests, monthly giveaways and much more. I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, My email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed how you can get smarter in a complex and complicated world. How do you deal with confusing and difficult situations? How do you work through some of your life's most complex problems? In a world of accelerating change, How do you accelerate the quest for wisdom and creativity? We shared a simple, powerful solution that you can use to handle complexity in our previous interview with our guests, David Komlos and David Benjamin. If you wanna finally understand how to deal with complex and confusing situations, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Jessica. Today, we have another awesome guest on the show, Jessica Leahy. Jessica is a teacher, writer, and author. She's an expert contributor for The Atlantic and The New York Times and is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure How the Best Parents Learned to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She's also a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leader Board. Jessica, welcome to The Science of Success.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. Uh, I really enjoy a lot of the topics that you speak and write about, and I can't wait to dig into a number of these different themes and ideas.
3: Oh, I love talking about this stuff, so this makes me very happy, too.
2: Awesome, awesome. Well, I'd love to start out with the starting point of, of much of this, which is the self-esteem movement and and how maybe it was a little bit misguided.
3: Yeah, so it actually meshes well with my starting place for all of this. And that's, you know, I've been a teacher for over 20 years now and um, have noticed how the trajectory of Parenting into this sort of, you know, what do you, whatever it is you want to call it—the whole snowplow, lawnmower, Black Hawk, whatever you want to call it—overparenting, and this whole, uh, you know, we need to tell our kids constantly how wonderful they are, so that we can prop up their self-confidence as much as possible, um, so that they can go off to school feeling like they have this beautiful like force field of wonderfulness around them that nothing can ever destroy. Um, You know, it's really done our kids a disservice. And I was finding in my classroom that the kids were more anxious, less um, interested in taking challenges and risks and, and less interested in being brave and less interested in the learning, which was a real, obviously as a teacher, that's sort of where the rubber really hits the road for me. And lots of kids were feeling confident about their abilities because they were being told constantly how wonderful they are, how talented and gifted they were, but weren't feeling at all competent, weren't feeling like they had any experience trying and screwing stuff up and learning how to do it better to really back up that sort of empty, optimistic confidence that they were carrying around with them. And and as a teacher... The problem with that for me is that as a teacher, confidence doesn't really go very far in the classroom. Uh, Competence is where kids really start to feel good about their work and good about their abilities. And so when I had these kids who were just chronically afraid, chronically nervous, chronically afraid to take challenges, I really noticed a big drop off in their interest in learning, their motivation for learning and their sense of their own abilities. And, And that's, you know, at its best. Education works as a really great team, a great partnership between home and school. And that partnership was starting to deteriorate as well, I think, because of some of the animosity that teachers were feeling for parents for setting that system up. And then for parents were feeling for teachers because, you know, as the stakes get higher, I think some of the parents were viewing us more as the enemy instead of an ally to work with towards, you know, their kids learning.
2: I love this phrase that you said, empty optimistic confidence.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I you know, the problem is so there's this great research that shows that, um, you know, we seem to think that if we just tell our kids over and over again, how wonderful and and, you know, talented and gifted and all that, you know, I make the joke of saying things like, you know, you just fell out of the womb good at math and therefore math has just come so easily to you. The problem with telling kids things like that, especially kids who are struggling, is that That doesn't make their confidence Go up. That doesn't make their self-esteem go up. It actually, with kids in particular who are feeling, uh, who have really low self-esteem, who are struggling in school, it makes their self-esteem go down. Because when our purported image of our kids, you know, of them being so incredibly talented and everything should be easy for them, when that thing we're telling them, that vision of their lives that we're telling them about doesn't match what they're actually experiencing at school, which is naturally having problems Understanding things, um, running into obstacles, finding new concepts difficult, which is how it's kind of supposed to work. There, um, they start to not really trust our judgment. Number one, and number two, they start to feel really bad about themselves, and they start to be confused about which reality is they're supposed to trust, the one in which they're good at everything right away or the one in that they're actually experiencing in which some things are difficult for them. Um, and that that's a difficult place for a kid to be on an emotional level.
2: I didn't even think about the, the angle of eroding your own trust and credibility when the perspective of the world that you've shared that they're this gifted, talented, amazing individual doesn't match up.
3: Well, it's not even when we do that. I mean, I think from, you know how when you have really little kids and they're constantly showing you the pictures they drew or the things they're working on, the things they're making, and they're like, mommy, daddy, look at this. What do you think? What do you think? One of the best things we can do is turn it around and say, well, what do you think? Because that constant sort of you know, I do this all the time. I I think what my kids do is just brilliant, especially as they get older and they're starting to be able to do things that I can't do. I just am in awe of their abilities. And I want to say constantly how talented and brilliant and amazing they are. But the problem with doing that too much is that they start to not believe us because, you know, they know where their parents were supposed to think everything that they do is wonderful. And so, if we were to turn it around and say, well, what do you think from a very early age, then we can help our kids come up with some sort of internal compass for good quality work as opposed to, you know, just sort of assuming that everything we're going to say is that they're that they're great. And, and you can see there's this moment. It happens often in kindergarten, actually, when kids will start showing us crap. Just to sort of test their theory, their theory of how we're going to respond to it. And if they start showing us stuff that isn't their best work and we rave about it, when they show us some, you know, here's a scribble on a paper and we rave over it and put it up on the refrigerator, that's not doing them any favors because now, you know, there's that distrust that can happen, but also they're they're not really developing their own their own compass of quality, their own, huh, this is my best work or, oh, no, that's not my best work. This was a scribble I made. And it happens even in high school. I have kids do it with uh, poetry all the time. They sort of think poetry. They I, I've had students pull practical jokes on me where they'll write down, you know, something they dashed off right before class and they expect me to ooh and ah over it because it's incomprehensible and therefore wonderful. And, you know, at Sometimes the joke works and sometimes it doesn't. And and I think that kids who have that sort of true north about their own abilities are going to be a lot more resilient, are going to have a lot more sense of actual real competence as opposed to this empty sort of optimism that the people around them will love every little mark they put on a piece of paper. And, you know, we have to help them with that because – in order to become better writers, they have to be able to hear edits. And in order to become better artists, they have to be able to hear feedback about their work. And uh, again, we're not doing them any favors when we don't give them any of that constructive feedback and just continue to tell them that they're the most talented creature that's ever come down the pipeline.
2: How do you deal with the difficulty of wanting to shower praise on them and, and tell them how amazing they are, but holding that back or channeling that into something else?
3: You know, again, as I said over and over again, I do this all the time. This is a challenge for me all the time. Um, My son right now, who's 15, is in the process of learning how to produce and create digital music, and um, and he's using these software programs that I don't even understand how they work. So, of, of course, I'm in awe of the situation, and as he gets better and better at it, I'm not that great of a barometer for him. I don't know, I can't really tell when one thing is better than another, so I ask him, he created something last night that I, of course, listened to and thought was brilliant and thought my kid was, you know, like the most amazing thing that had ever dropped from the heavens. But I asked him to tell me why this marked progress for him because he was explaining it to me as a sort of a, a breakthrough for him. And in, rather than just listening to it and telling him you know this is great i asked him to describe to me why this why he felt this was better why he thought this was improved and this was an improvement on what he was doing last week that i thought was great too and you know that emphasis on process over end product is going to, it's so powerful in so many ways. I mean, this really gets back at, this sort of is tied into the work of Carol Dweck with mindset. This is tied into that idea of if we're constantly talking about the learning, then our kids will actually believe us when we tell them things like, you know what, what I really care about is that you're learning, as opposed to, you know, what most kids tell me is that they know that that's BS, that what their parents really care about is what grade they bring home. So I'd much rather have a really useful discussion where I actually learn something and my kid can actually explain to me what he's doing, where I say, you know what, I, this sounds fantastic to me, but explain to me what it is that you think makes this special. And in doing that, he has to come to terms with, well, is this actually something new and special? Or is this something, here's what I'm proud of. Um, And that focus on process over product is great. The other nice thing is I get a lot of questions about when I'm out on the road about, you know, kids that are highly anxious, kids that are highly perfectionist and therefore can get like paralyzed in their own fear of looking foolish or looking stupid. Focus on process over product is an amazing way to diffuse really anxious kids, really perfection oriented kids, because they're naturally focusing on the difference between that 98 and that 96. They want to freak out over those points. But if we're constantly pulling it back to process over product, we can help diffuse that. The other thing we can do that it's great for is One of the big things kids tell me, and I got to write about this recently for the Washington Post, is that they feel like we love them more when they bring home really high grades and love them less when we bring home when they bring home low grades. In fact, I ask this question all the time of kids when I'm out speaking at schools and around 80% of the middle school students tell me that they really believe that their parents love them more when they bring home high grades and less when they bring home low grades and in high school it's about 90%. So the messages we're sending to kids are what I care about is the end result, not necessarily how you got there, because that grade is all important to me. So when we praise them or love them just based on their performance, you know, that's called outcome love. It's called withdrawal of love based on performance. And that's a highly destructive thing to do to kids on an emotional level. So whenever we have the ability to focus on process, even if it's a low grade, even if we're, you know, the difference between a a test that's an A and a test that's an F, you know, on an emotional level for me, well, the F stinks and the A is fantastic. But what I can do is say to my kid, well, What did you do to get that grade or what went wrong that you're going to leave behind and what are you going to do next time to improve? Have you talked to the teacher? Did you get any feedback? You know, you say your friend got an A on this and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do and what did you do that your friend didn't do? Did you get enough sleep the night before? What did you have for breakfast? All of these questions about the process can number one, help our kids believe us when we tell them that we re- what we really care about is the learning. It can help focus their attention back on the learning and less on the end result. And it can bring everyone's focus back to what's really important, which is when you screw up, when you fail at something, that's not the end point. That is the beginning point for your journey towards what we're going to do next time to do better. And, um, you know, when we just pay lip service to that, kids get it. They know that we're full of crap. So if we can just focus all of our language around, what are you learning here? How are you going to do better next time? What did you do here? What are you not going to do? What are you taking forward with you? How are you going to be better next time around? That that process-oriented language um, is sort of a it's, a, it's a real, it's a way to solve a whole lot of problems at once. Sorry for the big, long, rambling answer, but that whole focus on process of a product is such an important element of helping kids stay immersed in the learning as opposed to getting so focused on the end result. And, and you know, if anyone who's ever watched Dan Pink's TED Talk or read Dan Pink's Drive or read Edward DC's Why We Do What We Do, The Science of Self-Motivation, anyone who's read any of that stuff knows that extrinsic motivators, motivators that come from outside of us, like grades, points, scores threats of punishment, uh, promises of rewards for good performance at school, all of those things are really terrible for human motivation. And what actually works for human motivation is being immersed in the learning for the sake of the thing itself. So anytime we can take that focus off of the grades, we're doing our kids a huge favor.
2: I want to dig into the difference and deeper into this idea of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. But before we do, for somebody who's listening to this who's a parent who's thinking or saying to themselves, but I really do care about the results. I care about the grades, not this other stuff. What would you say to them?
3: Well, of course we care about that stuff because our, unfortunately we have made, our society has made those grades all important um, in, you know, for colleges, for scholarships, for all kinds of things. You know, I'm happy to report, I'm I'm really optimistic right now, I have to say. There aren't a lot of super optimistic people in education right now, but I'm one of them. Um, where more and more, there are schools moving away from A through F grading, which is a really, it is such a blunt instrument, such an insufficient instrument for keeping the focus on learning and moving towards things like standards-based grading, um, moving towards a system that actually works for helping kids achieve mastery as opposed to being really good game players and cramming and regurgitating and that kind of thing. So, you know, you're, my advice To parents, anytime you hit one of these difficult moments where you really need to step back from that A versus that F is to say to yourself, okay, take a breath. This parenting thing is a long term process. It is not, you know, our success or failure, our kids' success or failure is not built in these out of these small moments. It's and these emergencies. It's built in the moments when we can step back and say, okay. What do I want my kid to be able to do six months from now? Do I want to my kid to be able to go talk to the teacher, to think about the fact that maybe pulling an all-nighter wasn't the best approach? Maybe that getting some more sleep was the best approach. Maybe I want my kid to be able to just develop better study habits. Um, and I think, you know, I hear that all the time from parents too. And the best way to do that is to constantly talk about what went wrong here how to do it next time. And we have to keep that long-term focus on parenting, you know, our our long-term focus on where we want our kids to be a month down the road, six months down the road, a year down the road, as opposed to, you know, allowing our freak out over this emergency in front of us to really dictate the communication with our kid. Because unfortunately, what ends up happening with kids, and they talk to me about this all the time, that they feel like they can't talk to their parents anymore because the parents are so fixated on the grades that they know, they say, I can't talk about this stuff with my parents because I know it's going to deteriorate into a, but I know you can do better kind of conversation. And they just don't hear me when I tell them that I need support or I'm doing my best and I and I need to, you know, seek extra help from the teacher or I need your support in order to help me get over this fear I have of um, of screwing up that a fear that's, you know, incapacitating kids uh, because they're so freaked out about looking smart, externally looking smart and making it look effortless. Not just that they're smart, but that it's easy, like you can't break a sweat. That is the stress that's really paralyzing kids, making kids unlikely to take the challenge problems or raise their hand in class or ask me for extra help or ask their friends for extra help or ask their parents for extra help because they don't want to be perceived as anything other than perfect. Um, And that's just handicapping kids all over the place. So focus on the long term over the short term. Take a breath. Think about, you know, not today, but where you want your kid to be um, next time. I think that's for me anyway, one of the best things I do because it it just sort of diffuses that feeling of urgency and that feeling of, but I have to fix everything right this very second. It also diffuses for me those moments when I want to do too much for my kid, when I want to deliver the forgotten homework to school or take the cleats to school because my kid forgot them at home. And, you know, instead of when I take that breath and I think about, you know, okay, well, yeah, he's 15 and he forgot his cleats today, but what I really would like is when he's, you know, 15 and a half, I don't have to think about his cleats anymore. It's not my responsibility anymore because in a few short years, I don't get to be there to clean up for him. So I have to think more long-term and I have to resist that temptation to step in and do for him to be what's called a directive parent, and instead to be what's called an autonomy supportive parent, where I help my kid come up with solutions for next time. So that focus on next time, that focus on long term, um, that gets me out of a lot of uh, a lot of problematic moments.
2: So many different things I want to unpack from that. <laughs> To, to start, without without going super deep down this rabbit hole, I'm really curious. You you touched on this idea that the school system is starting to redesign some of the learning systems to focus around mm-hmm. mastery instead of focusing on, as you called it, game playing and cramming, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting. Could you give me just a, a hint of an insight into what sure. some of those solutions are?
3: Well, there's actually even more than that. I mean, I think um, there's... Uh, Schools are really starting back with the idea of professional development. For For so long, professional development, the, the training that teachers do just to keep up to speed on what works and what doesn't work in education, um, for a long time, professional development, just it just stank. There was – there's no – there really wasn't a lot of evidence happening. Um, there was a lot of, we've always done it this way. And so we'll just continue to do it this way kind of thinking. Um, as we begin to learn more and more about what really works for learning with the advent of, you know, functional MRIs where we can look inside brains as they're learning and actually see what works and what doesn't. We're learning so much about what works in learning. And and that's my favorite thing is to talk to the researchers who are, you know, really doing this frontline research, looking at people's brains and figuring out what works and what doesn't. So there's more of this sort of learning in the brain information leaking into professional development. Thank goodness. So some of the things that are starting to happen are, um, for example, this focus not on grades. And, you know, A through F grading was never intended to be a measure of learning. It actually, the origin of grades themselves was as a socioeconomic sorter. It was the way you, you would line kids, you would seat kids in your class according to their socioeconomic status and how much you needed to pay attention to each kid. So the A's were in front and the F's were in back. So that A through F grades. And if you think about it, as a parent, I have two boys myself. As a parent, I would much rather if, let's say my kid gets a B on a report card. I don't know what that means. I don't know what he's learned. I don't know what he hasn't learned. I don't know what he can and can't do. But if I get what's called a standards-based report card, which is a listing of all the skills, for example, that a kid needs to know in a given year, and that can be based on the Common Core standards, that can be based on some edited version of the Common Core standards that a school chooses to come up with on their own, it's just a list of skills that a kid should be able to master by a given year. So if I know, for example, that my kid can add two fractions with a with the same denominator but can't add two fractions with a different denominator, then I know that's a skill he needs. And I can look at this list of skills and say, okay – He can identify a noun, but doesn't know what a verb is. And he has no idea what an adverb is, but he can tell me what a, you know, a pronoun is, that kind of thing. That's information. And as a parent, I want information. I don't necessarily want this be this representation of whatever it is based on the teacher based on the material based on the grading system and all these other things I can't know so that's system standards based grading there are a lot of schools that are trying to move in a direction of measuring mastery um some of them I'm more excited about than others and I you know I won't go into all of that but On the other hand, we're also doing these things. um, Teachers are beginning to understand the difference between what's called a formative assessment and a summative or cumulative assessment. And formative assessments are incredibly powerful because they allow me on a daily basis to check in with my students and know where they all are in relation to the material that I've been teaching. So if I go into my classroom, and yesterday I taught about, in Latin class, I taught about the difference between the nominative case and the accusative case, and I do a little check-in, a little low-stake low-anxiety kind of quiz check-in that doesn't count for anything. It's formative. It's formative for my students because they can find out what they do and don't know. And it's formative for me as a teacher because I can find out what I did well yesterday and what I didn't do well yesterday and what people heard and what they didn't hear and what they learned and didn't learn. So that when I get to like a big test, which is generally more of like a a summative or or, um, cumulative assessment, which is like teach, 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 and then we have this one big test that's worth a ton of points, and you better get nervous about it, and you better take it seriously. It measures what kids know like at the end of a unit, summative. Those summative assessments can be really valuable, but only when they're prefaced by a whole bunch of formative assessment. And any teacher that's using formative assessment well should be able to predict exactly how every single kid is going to do on some big test because they know exactly where every kid is. And formative assessment, like I said, is valuable for both of us. One of the big things, when I both of us meaning students and teachers, because one of the things that we as humans are really bad at is this thing called metacognition, which is knowing what you do and don't know. We tend to overestimate what we know. And for kids, any opportunity they get to take a little summative, low-state formative quiz and find out what they do and don't know, they can say, oh, shoot, I thought I understood that. I guess I don't. That's really exercising their skills of metacognition, and that's incredibly valuable to them. So, for example, we I just moved, and we were lucky. We had our sort of choice of a bunch of different towns within a 40-minute radius of where my husband um, was taking a new job. And we looked at the school systems and we looked at who was using letter grades and summative and cumulative assessments and who was using uh, standards-based grading and at least understood the benefits of formative assessment. And that's how we chose where we live. So luckily now I have a kid who's my younger kid is going to a school that uses standards-based grading, lots of formative assessment. The kids always know that The work that they're doing, whether it's like something that's going to count or something that's really just about their learning and the pressure in the school is so much lower and yet the quality of the learning is really high because the stress is on the learning, the focus is on the learning, as opposed to, you know, these high-stakes test grades. And the nice thing about this is that you can still grade kids. You can still put it in a format that a college can understand as a, you know, here's what kids know and here's what they don't. And think about this. If a college um, sees a summative assessment and then sees another report card for another kid that just has A's and F's, you know, A through F grading, the college can look at the kid with the summative assessment and say, oh, my gosh, here's what this kid actually knows. We don't need to, like, go look at the standards this school uses to figure out, you know, what their A through F grading means – this other school over here, I can just look at this kid's record and I can see right here what he or she does or does not know. And is that a good fit for the classes that this kid will be taking here? Um, I think colleges are starting to understand the benefit of more information as opposed to these blunt instrument grades. And, you know, I really, again, I'm really optimistic. I think that understanding how kids learn is fueling teaching um, more than I've ever seen it fuel teaching. And, that stuff is benefiting kids and it's benefiting parents because parents get more information as well about what their kids do and don't know and need help with. So all around, it seems to be working pretty well and I hope it catches on. I I talk at a lot of schools where they're trying to move from one format of grading into another. And they often bring me in to talk about the difference to the parents about the two so that I can help the parents let go of the idea that you have to have a grade that's an A through an F in order to understand whether your kid is doing well or not. And maybe that isn't as useful to us as um, an actual report about their mastery.
0: After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows.
2: Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have, but you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I want to change gears and come back to... (laughs) Uh, a topic that I think is really interesting and important from Gift of Failure, which is this idea of the importance of letting kids be frustrated and how Mm -hmm. frustration ties into the learning process.
3: Oh, it's so, it is so important. So here's what we know. there. When I talk about parenting styles, generally what I'm referring to is directive parenting. Is, you know, when you tell your kid, exactly how to do something you tell them each step they walk through it so for example if your little kid is learning how to load the dishwasher you say okay take this glass and put it right there okay now take this plate now turn on the water and rinse it and put it right there that's very directive parenting and it also means that when they run into a problem or a frustration with a task that's difficult for them we often will direct them through that frustration and tell them how to do it and give them the instructions. And teachers are are uh, guilty of this as well. There's directive teachers, definitely. Autonomy supportive parenting or teaching is different. It's parenting that really supports our kids' ability to get frustrated, to struggle with that frustration and find the answers themselves. It's directing kids in a way that directs them towards their own figuring out the answer to a problem as opposed to just handing over the answer. Because, and believe me, it would be so much easier to be directive all the time. I could save myself a ton of time. I could save my kids a ton of time, or at least push off a lot of problems till later. I hate seeing my kids frustrated. I hate seeing my students frustrated. I would much rather just hand them answers. But that's horrible, horrible learning. The reality of uh, the difference between uh, directive parenting and Autonomy supportive parenting is that when you take those kids and you give them tasks on their own um, that are challenging and you remove them from the parent or the teacher and ask them to complete those tasks on their own. The kids who have had the autonomy supportive parents are much more likely to be able to complete a frustrating task on their own because kids who have been highly directed don't know how to cope with that feeling of frustration. And in one study that I talk about in the book in particular that Wendy Grolnick uh, did with some kids – the kids who were highly directed, the kids who had highly directive parents, almost none of the kids were able to complete the sort of slightly frustrating tasks that she had designed for them. Whereas the kids of the autonomy supportive parents, almost all of those kids pushed through their frustration and were able to finish the task. So fast forward to school and you have a kid that comes to school and can one kid can cope with frustration and the other kid can't. Man, that kid who can handle some frustration and sort of wrestle with it and push through and persevere or have fortitude or have grit or whatever word it is you want to use, that kid is going to learn so much more because there's this concept called desirable difficulties and desirable difficulties are one of the most powerful teaching tools I have. It's when I give kids, I give my students Tasks that are a little bit more challenging to understand, a little bit more challenging to get inside their head, a little bit more challenging to parse. Those kids will understand the task I've given them, the learning inherent in the task I've given them, more deeply in the short term and more durably over the long term. So if you think about who can benefit from desirable difficulties, who can benefit from getting a task that's a little bit frustrating and being able to push through and complete the task, that's not the kid with the parents who are highly directive. It is the kid with the parents who have given them the room, the autonomy supportive parents who have given their kid the room to screw up and figure it out for themselves. Kids who can't be frustrated are a nightmare to teach. They fall apart at the drop of a hat. They're those kids that, you know, go to their first gymnastics practice and can't do a round off back handspring and say, well, that's that's it. I'm never going back to gymnastics ever, ever, ever. I can't do it ever. Um, and, and I can say that because I did that to my kid. You know, the punchline of Gift of Failure is that I have made all these mistakes. And just when I was getting frustrated with the parents of my students for doing this to their children, I realized I had a nine-year-old son who couldn't tie his own shoes and was so ashamed of that fact that he was hiding it from me and hiding it from his teachers and being defiant and sitting out of PE class wearing because he was wearing his brother's boots because he didn't have any shoes that he could tie. And that was humiliating and embarrassing for me. But it was also a real breakthrough moment where I realized, you know, my kid can't do this thing because I have kept him from being able to do it. Every time I've done it for him, I've told him in some implicit way, you know, I just don't think you're competent enough to handle this. And I, I did that to him. I rendered my kid helpless and incompetent. And, you know, in order to do better for my students and to do better for my own kids, that's, you know, basically why I spent a couple of years researching and writing this book.
2: That's a really succinct way to summarize it. This idea <laughs> that a lot of the things we think are helping really render our children, as you put it, helpless and incompetent.
3: Yeah. The research on learned helplessness is fascinating. I love reading about that stuff because really the the punchline of learned helplessness is that uh, it's our uh, Martin Seligman at um, University of Pennsylvania did a review of the research on learned helplessness and realized that the punchline of learned helplessness is that it's actually our default sort of our default circuitry when faced with long-term pain or frustration or struggle is to pretty much, you know, ball up and cover our heads and, you know, just sort of give up, go helpless. And the way we can get around that, the way we can stop that from happening and sort of stop that circuit is to uh, give more control back to the subject, back to the kid, back to whomever it is that is feeling helpless. And, you know, over and over again, I find in my classroom that the more, control I give my kids, my students, sorry, teachers often do that. We often call them our kids. We mean our students, although they're really kind of our kids too. The more we do that with our students, the more we give them some autonomy over their their learning. Like if I have a a goal that they need to write or learn how to write research papers, you better believe I'm gonna let them write research papers on whatever whatever it is that floats their boat because I'm gonna get a lot more buy-in and they're gonna own the learning more if I give them more control. So for the students I teach these days, who are students who have been given very little control over their lives, I teach them. I happen to teach right now in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for kids. So kids who have grown up with very little control over anything and who feel very helpless, whether that's because they're, you know, in state care, in foster homes, in group homes, their parents are addicted themselves. They they live in a lot of situations where they don't have the power to change much of anything. And they've come to believe that they are completely helpless and completely powerless. And the one way I can get them out of that is to give them choice back. So I've had to learn how to be an incredibly flexible teacher and an incredibly, I've had to let go of the control that I used to hold on to with the tightest grip possible, because I thought my job was to stand at the front of the room and be the expert on everything. And that's not true. My job is to be in the classroom and support them while they become experts in things um, with my help and to give them you know, the room to do that uh, in a way that will keep them interested. And, uh, you know, as a parent, that it's really changed the way I parent and the way I teach, um, understanding that, that the way we get kids, what's called intrinsically motivated, motivated to do stuff for the sake of the learning itself, is to give them more autonomy, to give them a feeling of competence and not just that empty confidence that I talked about before, and to let them know that we really, truly are connected to them, that we're there to support them no matter what, that we don't just love them based on their performance. I tell parents when I'm out speaking, it's really quite simple for parents. We have to love the kid that we have and not the kid that we wish we had. And we can't just love them based on their performance because they know when we're doing that. And that breaks our connection with the kids. It it makes them distrust us. So autonomy, competence, and connection. And that's how we really boost intrinsic motivation.
2: Tell me a little bit more about how we foster competence.
3: Competence is all about... As opposed to confidence, competence is about uh, confidence based on actual experience. Competence is, you know, I make the analogy when I'm talking to kids, especially in places I've never been before. I'll say, look, I know how to drive a car. I learned how to drive just outside of Boston. So I'm a I was a grew up a Boston driver so i can drive a car fairly defensively <laughs> and i also know how to use navigation software so if i go to a new town i have to pretty i can pretty much assume that i'll be able to figure it out i should be able to get in a rental car from the airport to the school or the hotel where i'm staying And yeah, I I feel good about that. I feel good about my abilities because I've done it. I've made mistakes. I've gotten lost. I've had to figure it out for myself. I've had to ask directions. I've had to make phone calls to ask people to tell me how to find them. So I've coped with doing that well and doing it poorly. And I've learned how to problem solve. So I feel competent that I'm going to be able to get from the airport to this school and give a talk. For kids, it means that I they have been able to do really simple tasks and then maybe their teacher gives them a slightly more difficult task and they don't fall apart and they know that the teacher's there to support them, but that they can give it a shot. They might get it wrong, but they'll be able to figure out a way to get to the end result they want. And that as those iterations, as those challenges that I give my students get harder and harder, that they maintain this sense of competence. They maintain the sense of, yeah, you know, I did that easier one and I got through that. And then I did that harder one. And yeah, that was hard. And I screwed it up a couple of times, but I finally figured it out. So, yeah, I think I can do this much more difficult version here, which, by the way, often is the same thing as a desirable difficulty. They can, you know, that's one way we sort of move kids towards acceptance of trying things that are that are difficult that's how we create kids who don't just feel that empty sense of confidence like eh it'll probably be fine i don't know never done this before but whatever to a kid that really has a sense of yeah i've i've managed some of the problems leading up to this and i think i can handle it given the skill set that i have uh, you know i make a a joke in the in the book in gift of failure that this boy from down the street really wanted me to show how this big log splitter worked that was really a dangerous piece of machinery. Um, But this is a kid who had been Um, told by his parents. You know, he's fantastic parents. No, you know, I don't mean to disrespect his parents, but his parents had pretty much told him he was brilliant at everything, and that and he could just do anything all the time, whenever, with no experience. And so he wanted me to turn on that log splitter and let him have a go at it. (laughs) And you know, this was a little kid. He didn't have any experience. He he didn't know what to do if it jammed or if you know where to put his hands and what happened if something went wrong. He had no he. He wasn't competent in log splitting, but he was definitely confident in log splitting. And competence is just, competence lasts. Confidence is easily shattered. But competence is this thing that really once kids get a taste of it, they want more. Um, It feels good. It makes us feel like we can, it makes us feel powerful and it it really diffuses that learned helplessness. Um, the more competent we feel, the more competent we want to become kind of thing. And it's, it's really magic when you see that positive feedback loop really start to happen in the classroom. A kid sort of gets that first taste of, oh, wow, I can do this. And then they are like, okay, let's see what else I can do. It's really amazing to watch.
2: So how do we give the gift of failure to our children?
3: Definitely, I mean, those three things I was talking about before, the ingredients for intrinsic motivation are a really good place to start. Um Actually, the very first place that I would start is by really starting to convince myself that this parenting thing really is a long-haul job. It's really not something I'm going to, you know, be able to check off every single day, this box, this checkbox of was I a good parent today? Because it's it's a little different every day and we're going to have bad days and we're going to have great days and our kids are going to have bad days and they're going to have great days. And what really matters is that final tally, like when they're out there in the world, and they're either able to problem solve and do things for themselves, or they're not. They either feel good about their competence, or they go out into the world, can't do something right the first time around and fall apart and need to take a mental health, you know, year from college. So for myself, the very first place I start is I I really try to think long term, I try to stop thinking so much about the end product and focus more on the process. So that's sort of my mental starting place. And then from there, I really try to focus on giving my kids more choice, more autonomy, more control over the details, little stupid things like, you know, i I don't make my kids clean their rooms because for kids, that's the their room is the one place where they have some autonomy, the one place where they get to make their environment their own. And so, You know, letting go of little things like that, letting go of when I'm teaching them how to do laundry, for example, I have to let go of the fact that they all look rumpled and gross because they haven't been doing their laundry and so therefore they have no clean clothes, letting go of what other people think about me. Uh, A bunch of parents come up to parents come up to me all the time and they say, look, I'm on board. My kid is I don't let my kid do anything. And that has to change because I don't know how my kid's going to make it the minute he leaves my house. But I can't be the first parent to do it because everyone's going to think I'm totally falling down on the job. The teachers will think I'm incompetent. The other parents will think of me as a bad parent. So I can't be the first one to do it. But at a certain point, we need to find allies and stop worrying so much about what other people think about us and our children. Um, For example, when my son was choosing a college, I told him from the get-go, I said, look, the one thing we will not do is put a sticker for a college on the back of our car because that's not about your, that uh, we can't co-opt your accomplishment, your choice, um, your decisions about what's a good fit for you and what's not a good fit for you. It's not my boast to make on the back of my car. A choice of college is so much more important than that. Um, so I won't make that about my report card as a parent. Um, I, you know, I I know the lure of wanting the right sticker on the back of your car. So when you pull into the school parking lot, people can go, oh my gosh, look where that person's kids go to school and have that be some sort of ruling on your parenting. And I get how scary it is to be a parent because we don't get report cards on our parenting. We just don't. And that's incredibly anxiety provoking. Um, I'm used to getting evaluations and grades and all that kind of stuff. And I crave it. But at a certain point, I have to let go and say, look, my kids are not my report card and how they turn out has to be about them and not and it's not referendum on me. So autonomy, give my kids a little more control over their situation so that they can feel, so that they can take that, um, become less helpless, feel less helpless, feel like crave more competence. So autonomy and that competence I was just talking about, and then making sure at every turn that I'm not just saying that what I care about is the learning and I love you no matter what. Making it so that they believe me. Making it so that they watch me try stuff that's hard for me and screw it up, and come to them and talk to them about how I'm going to do better next time. Talking to them at the dinner table about this big screw up I made at work and how am I going to fix this? And making goals with our kids and talking about how we want to be better ourselves. And they, we can't expect them to be more brave learners to be, um, you know, have more courage intellectually and emotionally unless they see us be brave too. So I let my kids in on my screw-ups. I let my kids in on my fears. I let my kids in on my goals, even the really scary goals like publishing a place I've never published before or giving a new talk somewhere when I've been relying on the same one for a long time. That's really frightening. And as much as I want my kids to respect me and admire me and think I'm perfect, I have to let them in on those struggles or they're never going to believe me when I tell them that their struggles are part of why I love them and their response to those struggles are part of why I love them and why I say things like, you know what, I watched you when you did your homework last night and you stuck with that math problem so much longer than you would have a year ago and I'm so proud of you for that without any regard to whether the answer at the end was correct because that struggle, that effort, that dedication to something that's challenging to them is what's going to feed their success in the future, how they respond when they fail. I'm not, you know, I definitely don't want kids to fail. I, I hate it. But I do want them to feel that when they do fail, that they can have a what's called a positive adaptive response to that failure instead of falling apart, giving up, dropping out, quitting. I don't want them to be me, who, you know, a, a kid who went to law school assuming it was going to be easy for her because things had always been easy for her. And when I got my first grade in law school and it was um, a very low D on my first exam, my first instinct was to quit law school. I don't want them to feel that way about themselves. I want them to think, okay, how can I do better next time? And, you know, luckily I had someone who talked me through that and I stayed. Um, but I don't want them to feel like it's either perfection or give it up. That's called a fixed mindset. That's thinking that you're either intelligent or you're not. And if you don't do something perfectly the first time, it must mean you're stupid. Um, I just want kids to feel like they can learn. I want them to feel good about themselves. I want them to have competence and not just confidence. So all of that, that autonomy, the competence, that real connection with kids, making sure they they know that we have their backs and we have their backs no matter what that's what feeds this intrinsic motivation and this love of learning not just now but hopefully for the rest of their lives
2: well the reality too is that failure is inevitable it, it's <laughs> it it's it's so it's so dangerous to yeah. per, to prepare or to send kids into a place where they're incredibly brittle in the face of such a a world that's right. filled with difficulties and challenges etc
3: and that's why the heart of this book is middle school because it's you know, middle school is this, I say, in the book, is this big setup. You know, we thrust kids into a situation in middle school where they do not have the frontal lobe capacity to hand. Frontal lobe is the last part of our brain to develop. It's where we um, do all of our higher order thinking, um you know, our time management and and project planning and all that kind of stuff. We put these kids, these you know, 12-year-old kids into middle school and hand them lockers and a schedule and lots of books and a planner and time management stuff that is way beyond their ability. And then really good, this is why middle school is so much fun for me. I love middle school because my job as a middle school teacher is to stand there day after day. Watch kids just screw up over and over and over again and pick my battles and my moment and my moment of trust with the kid and help them do better next time. And, um, you know, that's middle school is a miraculous place because that's the game that the game is becoming better. The game is screwing up because that's frankly, middle school is a big setup for kids. And if, you know, parents are telling me now that the stakes are so high that we can't even let them fail in middle school because, um middle school matters. Well, you know, I don't know what to tell you if if middle if failure is not an option for kids in middle school, then your kid has already lost. You've already you're going to lose the trust of your child. You're going to your child's going to lose faith in you. Your child is not going to believe you when you tell when you tell them that what you care about is the learning because that's frankly BS. You clearly don't.
2: So for listeners who want to start down this path and concretely implement some of the things we've talked about today, Mm -hmm. What would be one action item or piece of homework that you would give them to start this journey?
3: Very first thing is that mental place of process over product, long term over short term. And then if you have been doing too much for your kids, whether that kid is really little and, you know, frankly, talking to kindergarten teachers about this book when I was researching it, I, I asked them to tell me what i could tell parents that their kids can do that they don't think their kids can do and kindergarten teachers most of them anyway just smiled and laughed and said oh my gosh everything <laughs> so whether it's kindergarten or whether you have a kid a 17 year old who um has never done a load of laundry or managed their own homework or scheduling or whatever you know go to that kid and say you know what i think i've been underestimating you i think you can do a lot more than I've been giving you credit for. And starting today, I've picked X, whether that's taking care of your own dishes after you eat, or taking care of your own laundry, or a common place I encourage parents to start is with homework. Giving kids a really clear expectation the expectations you have for them in terms of how they're going to do something and, you know, what that's going to look like. And then really, really clear consequences and hopefully consequences that are actually related to not doing the thing itself. So if the kid doesn't take care of their dishes right after dinner, well, that food is going to be really, really hard on that dish and really crusty and it's going to take a long time. So, in in response to a kid not putting their dishes in the sink or taking care of them and putting them in the dishwasher after dinner, their job is to scrape all that icky food off of there and get that dish finally clean. And if it's the kid who doesn't do their homework because you haven't been checking up on them on their homework, because it's now their responsibility to do it when, where, why, and how they want to do their homework, then they're going to, you're not going to do something that's totally unrelated, like take away their electronics, or you know, do these things that, for kids with um, very uh, with still developing frontal lobe function, can be make no sense to them whatsoever from a from a sort of a cognitive perspective. If you can make the the consequence be something that's actually related to not doing their homework, like making the appointment with the teacher, so that, and then leading a meeting between you and the teacher, so that the kid can articulate to the parent and the teacher what's been going wrong, and the teacher and the parent can support the kid in coming up with strategies for how to do better next time. I've run those meetings, not run them, obviously, because the kid runs them, but I've sat in on those meetings. And I can tell you right now that having to run a meeting with a teacher and a parent where you actually ask for help and do the strategizing, you, the student, is way worse of a uh, of a consequence than having their electronics taken away. And it's a way more useful way to help kids uh, learn to do better next time. So really clear expectations, really clear consequences, go to your kid. And, and the nice thing about this is you're doing exactly what you're asking from your kid, which is, you know what, I thought I had been doing this parenting thing right. I've been doing it the way my parents did it, the way I thought I was supposed to do it. And you know what? I learned something today. I learned that maybe I've been doing a little too much for you. And when I do that, it gets in the way of your learning. And that stops today because I learned something and I'm going to change what I'm doing based on what I learned. That's all we're asking of them, which is to look with a really clear eye at what they've done, whether it's an A or an F or a failed project or whatever it is, figure out what they did wrong, and move forward after having learned how to do better next time. So model that behavior for them, be really clear with them, be honest with them, and then give them more autonomy. And and I I promise you, you're going to be shocked by some of the things that they figure out how to do on their own. And that competence breeds more competence. It's like this fantastic positive feedback loop. There are some bumps along the way. I'm not going to tell you it's super easy and they will test and they will have, you know, a honeymoon period and then a very clear end of the honeymoon period. But overall, when you're looking long term, if you, you know, get to a year from now and then look back and realize just how much more competent your child's become when you've given them the, sh- the space to do that.
2: Kids everywhere are going to be cursing the science of success when they have to start doing their own laundry. <laughs>
3: Well, there. Uh, my favorite. I have these on my website where, under speaking, I have these testimonials for you know if people are interested in hiring me to speak. And my favorite one is from an eight-year-old kid who said, "You don't let something like you don't help me with anything anymore." And since you read that book, and you know, it's not that we abandon them; it's just that we give them the room to figure things out for themselves, as opposed to just fixing every problem for them. And yes, some kids will get frustrated with that, but. I'll also tell you that when I speak to middle schoolers and high schoolers, and I ask them what kind of things they would like to be able to do on their own that they're not allowed to do, I have older teenagers tell me that they're not allowed to walk their dog by themselves in a, in a perfectly safe neighborhood because their parents are afraid, or they're not allowed to ride their bike around town, or they're not allowed to you know, take an airplane by themselves to go visit their grandparents, even though they're 17 years old. That kind of stuff you know, starts with let me teach you how to do it right and then let and then I'll show you and then you need to be able to figure out how to do this on your own as well and and we support them through that because we're not always going to be there to teach them how to do every little thing and and pick them up when they fall every single time so it's it's really amazing to listen to the kids, too, when, when I get letters from parents and when I get letters from kids, I love the letters that say, yes, my kid has gotten more competent because I've, you know, given them more autonomy and and that's wonderful and everything. But the letters that blow me away are the ones that say, and I get a lot of them that says, the amazing thing to me is my kid is not only more competent, but our relationship has improved so much because I'm not nagging. I'm not all over them all the time. I'm not the one having to remind them constantly about doing X, Y, and Z. They're doing it on their own terms. And that gives us the time and the space to have conversations that are actually meaningful and valuable to both of us. And that's, you know, those improved relationships. I mean, that's the secret sauce right there. That's it. The secret sauce of parenting.
2: And for listeners who want to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you and the book online?
3: They can find everything at JessicaLeahy.com. everything from a link to all my journalism at the New York Times, Washington Post, Atlantic, um, you know, Vermont Public Radio, and then uh, links to purchase the book, links to my speaking schedule. If you're interested in coming out and seeing what I do in person, there's even a video there of a keynote I gave last year at South by Southwest is right there on my website. So just about everything you could ever want is there. Um, If you go on YouTube, if you Google um, gift of failure, frequently asked questions, Uh, I have a set of videos out on YouTube uh, that really answer the questions I get most often, like about parenting special needs kids, parenting kids who are obsessed with perfection. There's even one there about how to get your kid to shower. So everything you could ever need is either on my website or at the Gift of Failure Frequently Asked Questions on YouTube.
2: Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom. It's been a really insightful conversation.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love talking about this stuff because, you know, Kids learning is really at the center of everything I do. And if I can help with that, I'm. it's a good day for me.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt. At successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, Please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.